Well, welcome back to the podcast, everybody. It's Dr. Mark Listek coming at you today with another episode of the Primary Care Pod. Uh, before we get in today, uh, we want to go back to our sponsor of the Primary Care Podcast, Panacea Financial. Uh, Panacea Financial, again, is a bank built for doctors by doctors. They're a financial service company for healthcare providers who understand your banking needs because they've been through it before. Their doctor co-founders noticed the theme during their training and practice. Banks didn't understand the financial needs of doctors, so they decided to fix it. At Panacea Financial, their mission is to make doctors' lives easier by trusting doctors as borrowers, not based on credit scores or debt amounts. They defend their customers' time, being available around the clock, not just nine to five, and they want to enhance your financial freedom by providing a personalized banking experience specifically for physicians and other healthcare providers. Panacea Financial can help you overcome the financial stress of training and practice. So check them out today at panaceafinancial.com. That's P-A-N-A-C-E-A financial.com. And tell them Dr. List from the Primary Care Pod sent you. Panacea Financial is a division of Primus Bank, member FDIC. Thank you again for sponsoring the Primary Care Pod. And again, you can sponsor the Primary Care Pod by reaching out to me at primarycarepod at gmail.com. And speaking of primarycarepod at gmail.com inbox, uh, today's joke comes from an anonymous listener. Uh, Dr. List, I know that you are from the Rushmore State. That is correct. I'm from South Dakota. Have you ever seen pictures of what Mount Rushmore looked like before it was carved? Uh, No, actually, listeners, I have not actually seen this picture. Um, The natural beauty was unprecedented. The natural beauty was unprecedented. Woo. All right, let's start the podcast. The Primary Care Podcast is written and edited by a family physician for an audience of other physicians, nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, residents, and medical students interested in primary care topics. This is not a podcast for patients and should not be used as medical advice. This is also a personal podcast produced on my own time and solely reflecting my personal opinions. Statements of this podcast do not reflect the views or policies of my employer, past or present, or any other organization with which I may be affiliated. Thank you for listening to the Primary Care Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark List, here to bring you the latest news, guidelines, and updates from primary care sources around the globe. Keeping it under 15 minutes long because you're in a hurry and I'm not that smart. Well, welcome back to the podcast, Pod Girls, Pod Boys, Pod People. It's your pod doc, Dr. Mark List. Um, today's episode is on a topic that I think is really relevant to primary care because we see a lot of painful diabetic peripheral neuropathy. And I think that this is such a hard topic because peripheral neuropathy is hard. Anybody who's treated people with peripheral neuropathy knows how hard treatment of peripheral neuropathy is because patients are miserable and the treatments are just okay, right? And specifically, I want to talk today about a recent study just last month in Lancet. And the study title, if you want to follow along, is Comparison of Amitriptyline Supplemented with Pregabalin, Pregabalin Supplemented with Amitriptyline, and Duloxetine Supplemented with Pregabalin for the Treatment of Diabetic Peripheral Neuropathic Pain, a Multicenter Double-Blind Randomized Crossover Trial. Now, uh, as, as the uh, title says, this is treating painful diabetic peripheral neuropathy um, that is confirmed in patients. Um, who have an average score pain scale on an average day or an average week um, have at least at least a four out of ten, but uh, I believe the mean was um, six and a half out of ten uh, described pain on a daily basis. And the idea is, is that we know that there are several medications that are well established to be somewhat helpful for neuropathic pain, 
right? And those are amitriptyline, duloxetine, uh, the gabapentinoids, uh, gabapentin and also pregabalin. Um, and there are others, but those are the mainstays um, and, and, you know, fairly well established at this point, right? There's robust evidence. And it's important also know that we've all been frustrated, at least I have been, I'm assuming you have been as well, with the fact that those pharmaco those pharmacological agents aren't that great like less than 50% pain relief in almost every single trial um statistically significant compared to placebo but also usually very disappointing for most patients and also by themselves even as monotherapy have significant side effects gabapentin lyrica sorry pregabalin uh, duloxetine aka cymbalta and amitriptyline all have significant side effects and we're going to talk about that here in a little bit as well but there was no good trial to this date that looked at combination therapy, right? So looking at patients, putting them on a medication, and then if they did not have significant pain relief, boostering them basically or bolstering them with a second medication and to see if that combination therapy was better than monotherapy and how better and was there one combination that was better than another combination, okay? Um, and to spare you all the details, it's a one-to-one-to-one-to-one-to-one-to-one-to-one uh, randomization where they basically randomize these people to receive a med and then to uh, supplement them if they didn't respond uh, suboptimally or if they didn't respond optimally to the initial monotherapy, they basically gave them a second uh, medication to try. And uh, basically, uh, uh, to, to spare you all the details, they saw that giving somebody a second medication helped, right? Statistically, it helped. And there was no combination that was better than the other, which fits with the monotherapy discussion because the monotherapy uh, data has always shown that there's not a ton difference between the data on pregabalin, gabapentin, uh, duloxetine, amitriptyline, et cetera, that they all just work okay and that none are necessarily better than the others. And you can choose some, you know, if they have also anxiety or depression, you could try duloxetine. If they had trouble with sleep, you could try amitriptyline, um, et cetera, et cetera, right? There are things that you can do. You can choose drugs because of the other benefits or how the patient um, responds in their negative side effects, right? You can choose a different drug um, based on the side effect profiles. And so, again, the take-home message is that dual therapy is better than monotherapy, a statistical significant reduction in pain scores, okay? Um, and specifically that this showed a basically a 50, over 50% reduction in all three groupings, okay? So uh, by themselves, there was about a um, 20%, uh, let me get to pull up the exact data here. I don't wanna overestimate um, the effect. Where is that? Yes, so monotherapy, uh, the average pain score was a 6.5. In the amitriptyline arm, it was 3.8. In the duloxetine, it was 3.9. In the pregabalin, it was 4.1. Um, they didn't test gabapentin specifically because they thought there was no point in trying both pregabalin and gabapentin. And gabapentin, technically, if you want to use it the most effectively and the expert recommended, you need to titrate up very, very slowly. And it's very hard to have a justified, you know, um, washout period or a monotherapy period of several months to see full effect uh, before you can go to the second arm. So they basically did pregabalin um, 
as kind of a marker of all the gabapentinoids, okay? And then the combined groups all showed even a better significant reduction in overall pain scores, uh, dropping it to 3.3, 3.3, and 3.3 in all three groups, okay? So again, a change in baseline of about half. Now, I think it's important to remember that, so the, the, the title is basically that there was a statistic, there was a significant improvement in pain response from monotherapy to double therapy, right? That is what the findings and the results show. But what does this actually mean? And what does it actually look like in real practice? Because as you know, I'm a medical nihilist. And so when I see a study that says we should, and, and maybe this will affect guidelines that basically said for treatment of peripheral painful neuropathy, we should be putting people on two therapies, right? Uh, just to improve pain even better. We're n the, the drop when people started on amitriptyline and then added pregabalin, they only had a 0.5 drop in that 10-point pain scale, right? So, I mean, right, there, there was a statistical reduction, and over 50% of people had a 50% reduction in their pain um, compared to baseline when they were in the double therapy. But Again, the, drum, the drop from 3.8 to 3.3 was statistically significant, but my question is for you and my patients would be, would this be clinically significant, right, compared to the side effects? And we're going to talk about side effect profiles. When people were started on duloxetine um, and, then, and then added on pregabalin, they went from 3.9 to 3.3. Again, a difference of 0.6 is statistically significant, but is it clinically significant, okay? And finally... Pregabalin started at 4.1, the weakest uh, response of any monotherapy, and then adding amitriptyline to that, a, th a, uh, a regimen of 3.3 or a drop of 3.3. Again, a drop of 0.8 statistically significant, but question mark, clinically significant. So why I hesitate to change my practice based on this study? And, you know, I, I talk about a lot of uh, studies that really change my mindset and change my practice, um, is that the side effect profiles of all of these medications are are pretty bad in some cases, right? Amitriptyline, the biggest issues are dry mouth. In, in this study alone, right? We're not talking about in other studies or in the drug trials. In this study alone, amitriptyline was associated with a 20% significant reaction with dry mouth, a 20% significant reaction with fatigue, a 10% issue with constipation, 10% or 20% with sedation, which obviously we know about that because we can use it to our benefit, 10% uh, excessive sweating, 10% headache, okay? Duloxetine, 20% fatigue, thankfully no dry mouth, but 10% diarrhea, 20% nausea, 10% headaches, 10% uh, excess, uh, excessive vomiting, right? Pregabalin, only 10% fatigue, only 10% dry mouth, but 20% dizziness, 15% edema, right? 10% headaches, 10% sedation. These are not benign medicines. These are not benign medicines, right? And anybody who has prescribed these knows that that is absolutely the case that, you know, and when you looked at combinations, all of those numbers, every single one of those numbers went up, right? Fatigue got worse consistently across the board. Dry mouth got worse, right? Dizziness got worse. Sedation got worse, right? Uh, excessive sweating, falls, insomnia, or sorry, vomiting. Insomnia was pretty borderline, right? Um, and so I think it's really important to note that like, you know, 30% of patients had dry mouth in one of these arms, right? By the end of the study, 25% had dizziness in some of these arms, right? These are not benign treatment arms. And 
those symptoms are very clinically significant to patients, right? Um, and talking about making your life as a practitioner more complicated, we're going to get a 0.5 absolute reduction in a 10-point pain scale. And we're going to add 10% more of those patients are going to have significant side effects that you know we're going to have to deal with those downstream effects, right? In my opinion, I don't think the juice is worth the squeeze based on this study. The other crazy thing about this study was that in order to achieve, right, when I looked at the study, I was like, wow, monotherapy was actually that good, right? There was actually a 30% reduction in pain across the board, 40% in some cases with just monotherapy. Like that doesn't, that doesn't hold up to a lot of other research studies where it's even less than that, right? Um, the doses of these medicines they were using, um, amitriptyline, they, they scaled up amitriptyline all the way up to 75 milligrams a day, which that's pretty high compared to what I normally use, right? Pregabalin started at 75, which is normal, then went up to 150, but they finalized it at 300, sorry, 300 milligrams per day. I rarely get up to that high of pregabalin. Maybe I'm underdosing, right? And maybe that's a take home for me is maybe I'm, I'm underdosing my medicines in order to get optimized um, neuropathic pain control. Maybe I really do need to be pushing these doses, right? The uh, duloxetine dose uh, I thought was kind of crazy. They went all the way up to 120 milligrams per day for duloxetine. And again, that's something that I'm normally at like 60 milligrams per day. So again, maybe my take-home point is maybe I should be a little bit more aggressive with the doses of medicines before I stop, right? Um, I thought that was kind of nuts that it was uh, 75 milligrams of amitriptyline, 120 for duloxetine, and uh, actually, sorry, up to 600 a day for pregabalin. 300 was kind of the average stopping point, but some people went up to 600. Um, so I think that's kind of nuts, those doses. Um, I'm not going to change my practice based on this, but I'm going to be um, I'm not going to be surprised if guidelines are updated, basically recommending dual therapy uh, because of the statistical improvement across the board in the dual therapy groups compared to the monotherapy groups. But again, I think we have to look at our patients and um, look at the side effect profiles and see if the juice is really worth the squeeze to, you know, eke out a little bit more pain relief, but at the same time, you know, you know, dealing with significant side effects. This also didn't take into effect that negative symptoms of peripheral neuropathy, like numbness, uh, tingling, um, inability to feel, odd feelings, odd sensations, uh, are not improved, right? Uh, it's very, very, very difficult to treat negative symptoms. This is only specifically talking about pain symptoms. Um, the other thing that they didn't uh, look in the study, and this was a study in the United Kingdom, um, there's been a lot of studies, again, not high quality evidence studies, but a lot of studies on medical cannabis for neuropathic pain. I think I've mentioned that before in this podcast um, and have roughly similar monotherapy effects with cannabinoids uh, compared to a lot of the pharmaceutical agents. Um, so again, side effect profiles also exist with the cannabinoids. Um, and so you just can't brush that off either. But again, having conversations and using that as a tool in your arsenal, if it's legally available and you feel comfortable with it, I think is a thing that I've had a lot of patients be um, very happy with their uh, their um, neuropathy, pain, painful neuropathy treatment options. So anyways, hopefully this was a good uh, review of the current guidelines and recommendations for treatment of painful diabetic peripheral neuropathy. Obviously, we see this a ton. I don't think this study is going to change my opinion as much as it might 
maybe push me to give higher doses of the medications and not quit on such early doses and move on to the next ones. Um, I'm I'm reassured to see some of the data in this dual therapy isn't as wonderful as it was advertised, statistically improvement, but I mean, probably not clinically relevant. And uh, hopefully this will uh, uh, at least give me more uh, knowledge and confidence in prescribing here in the future. So again, this has been Dr. Marklis with the Primary Care Podcast. Again, uh, reminding you, you don't need to stay up all night to stay up to date. Uh, Thanks. And thanks again to Panacea Financial for sponsoring the podcast this week. Have a great week, everybody. Bye.